With Progressive's Name Your Price tool, you can find options that fit your budget. Because giving you options is the right thing to do. Oh yeah, like when I hold the door for someone. Sure, it may be weird if I don't time it right, and they're a little too far away, and oh, now they're running. And we're both asking ourselves, is it worth it to run instead of just, you know, letting them open their own door? But still, it's the right thing to do. So get options based on your needs with Progressive's Name Your Price tool. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and third-party insurers. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. I'm Dave Whitaker, and this is Vinyl Snob. Rather than waste time and money going to college, I'm just going to work in a record store and go see shows, chase girls, and try and play in a band. That's Tom Lynch, longtime record buyer for Amoeba Records in San Francisco. On this episode, producer Dana Berry continues his series, Confessions of a Vinyl Addict. We're known for jazz more than anything else. Um, I wouldn't say we're a jazz store by any stretch of the imagination, um, but our jazz collection runs really deep. And in our visit to an indie record store, we chat with Jonathan Sandler, owner of Village Vinyl and Hi-Fi in Brookline, Massachusetts. All of that, plus vinyl news on this episode. First up, vinyl news. We're recording this episode in the middle of March 2020 roughly one month after the devastating fire in Banning, California, at Apollo Masters, one of two companies in the world that manufacture lacquers, a key component in the pressing of vinyl records. In our previous episode, we spoke with Ron McMaster, who spent 37 years behind the cutting lathe at Capitol Records in Hollywood. Ron gave us the overall view of what this could mean to the industry, But with so many boutique mastering suites opening in recent years due to the popularity of vinyl, we thought we'd check in with what a smaller operation is dealing with. Joining us now by phone from Portland, Oregon, we welcome Gus from Sky Onion. Welcome to the program, Gus. Hi, thanks for having me. Let's do a little background. You do uh, not only vinyl mastering, but you also do uh, digital mastering, correct? You are a mastering facility. Uh, tell us about some of the work you do. So I do quite a bit of digital mastering. That's really most of my business. Uh, I've been full-time doing mastering for about eight years, and I typically run about you know, 20, 25 jobs a month, which can be a small job like a single for somebody, or it can be a full LP, including vinyl masters, uh, lacquers, instrumentals. And so it's a... The scope of my work varies a bit, but uh, since I've been doing it for quite a while, I have gained word of mouth recognition across quite a quite a few different places, and so I get I get a a good variety of clients coming through with uh, different genres of music and different qualities of recordings, and uh, it's fun to to do all that and help people release their music. Now, you do uh, digital mastering. Let's just touch on that briefly. I'm curious, this would be for uh, sort of MP3s as the, um, I'm, I'm sure you did CDs at one time, but uh, I, I can't believe that anybody is still manufacturing CDs. Yeah, I, you know, people still do CDs, believe it or not. I uh, did the masters for, C, you know, it, just this week I've done some CD masters, but a lot of people are focusing on Spotify, Apple Music, um, you know, streaming. Bandcamp, that sort of thing. So uh, that tends to be the the release that most people end up listening to, just because of the way we you know we consume music has changed so much. And um, but yeah, people still like CDs. That they, in my opinion, they you know they have a lot of commonalities with vinyl. You get the liner notes, you get the artwork it's in your hand. Um, you know, it's not as physically impressive. Uh, and I you know I prefer vinyl myself, but um, but yeah, I think CDs are cool. Let's get back to the uh, Apollo Fire. Now, when you do your vinyl mastering, uh, you have been mastering to lacquers for years, correct? Yeah, that's correct. I we um, we purchased the blank discs in a box of twenty five and um, put them on the lathe. Cut each side. Usually, it's one uh, you know one side goes on one disc. You don't cut the other side of the disc, and uh, so you requires two lacquers 
suppress an LP. And you were purchasing those, uh, as you said, in a box of 25, and uh, were you buying them from Apollo? Mostly. In fact, probably 98% of the lacquers I've ever used were Apollos. And uh, luckily, I decided to try MDCs in December for the first time. I became one of the newest MDC customers, and uh, theoretically, I will be able to get MDCs at some time, hopefully. And MDC is the company in Japan, which is, well, now the only company uh, in the world manufacturing lacquers, right? That's correct. And you said you did, you received lacquers from them in January? December, actually, where I, um, I actually received my first box of MDCs, and those are pretty much gone now. Uh, I have a few. I have a couple people on deck that have LPs that I need to cut, and um, basically all my lacquers are reserved at this point for those people. And was there uh, any difference in quality between Apollo and the MDC? Yeah, they're different. Um, they cut differently. The Apollos are a little bit harder material, and the MDCs are a little bit softer or stickier. They both, you know, it's it's hard to make them totally perfect, so they both have had imperfections at times. But I found that, you know, for the most part, well, the box of MDCs I had, they seemed really nice. Um, they cut with a really low noise floor. Some of the Apollos have had noise issues. You get some some backgrounds, um, you know, this background noise that uh, a lot of times is undetectable, but sometimes you can hear it a little bit. And it seemed like Apollos had more issues with that than MDC has. Now, did you, you said that what you have in stock is already sort of spoken for. Have you had any uh, communication with MDC about... Uh, what will be available in future orders? Early on, they were saying they were probably going to ration them, um, you know, so somebody could come in and just, you know, buy buy up the entire lot. Have you uh, had any conversations with MDC about what will be available in the future? Yeah, so I've talked to the North American distributor for MDC, and they receive one shipment a month from Japan. And, you know, they're typically pre-sold even before the Apollo fire. Those were typically pre-sold. Um, and I, I saw the day of the Apollo fire, I, I saw that and I had already been thinking, oh, I need, I need new, uh, a new box of lacquers. I'm almost out. So I, I emailed uh, the distributor that day and uh, they replied and said, oh, yeah, we're getting getting emails from people all over the world. Everyone's freaking out, trying to get lacquers. And they told me that since I had ordered before, they could put me on the waiting list, but I was not an established long-term repeat customer. So my place on the waiting list is probably the bottom. And um, they said they would try to get me a box in the February shipment. And that ended up not happening. And they, they've now said, hope for March. and um, yeah, they're definitely rationing them out. What about new customers? If, uh, say, someone had always been an Apollo customer, um, and uh, now that MDC is sort of rationing out their their product, any indication on uh, what will happen uh, as new customers come knocking at the door? Well, since MDC was already at their uh, peak production and they were they had a certain level that they were making and they were supplying their customers, uh, they have basically said that they are not taking on any new customers whatsoever. They're just going to continue servicing the people that already use MDCs. And that's a problem for people that uh, have not been using MDCs at all. And you had had one order before MDC, before the Apollo fire, you put one order in with them? Yeah. And so in December, there was a bunch of stuff going on. I felt like it was a storm of, of things that were happening um, where some of the stuff that I had cut were, was coming back noisy from a couple plating plants. And then there was a plating plant that ruined a bunch of my lacquers. Um, I had to recut uh, you know, five releases because they, they just completely got destroyed in the plating. So I decided to try MDCs. I had talked to some people that had already switched and they said that they liked them. And so I finally placed an order, which I had been considering doing for about a year. Um, every now and then there'd be a batch of lacquers that have some noise issues and I keep thinking, oh, maybe I should try and get these MDCs, but they were hard to get even then. You know, I talked to the distributor 
and they'd say, well, I don't have any now, but you can get on the list. And if we have enough and this, this month, then you can get them then. And, you know, and so you kind of cross your fingers. Whereas Apollo, you could just email them and they'd send you what you needed. Wow. Well, good thing you put in that order in December then. Yeah. I, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful. I, uh, I'm really kind of banking on this March order coming through. Yeah. So I got my fingers crossed and I'm going to be nervous until the UPS guy shows up, but uh, we'll see. Any indication from uh, your people at MDC that uh, they can, you know, step up uh, manufacturing, uh, uh, increase the output? I believe MDC does not want to increase the output. Um, They have a a certain system in place and they have a high-quality standard, and I think that they've gotten as big as they want to get and um you know like with many products it's a boutique product and it's very good and then they ramp up their production and um you know quality can suffer so i think that mdc is just sticking with their model and their 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 plan and i i doubt they will increase production it may just turn into there's going to be a wait any thoughts that another facility may try to uh, sort of fill the void left by Apollo? Yeah, well, there's there are definitely um, several companies that are working on making lacquers currently. Uh, there's a couple companies in Europe for sure. It, it will happen. There will be new lacquers from a new company and, you know, possibly even new formulations. This nitrocellulose lacquer that they're using is old technology. Uh, material scientists have advanced a lot, and there's, there's a chance that a chemist can come up with a new compound that performs better and is uh, more consistent, and you know maybe hopefully cheaper. But we'll see about that. And that would be great. The uh, I mean, the initial reaction to the Apollo fire was, oh my God, what's going to happen now? But you know, MTC. It sounds like they will, you know, somewhat fill the void. And these other manufacturers coming in. I mean, if there's a need. Uh, you know, someone de- will develop it, how long that takes and what the price would be. Uh, you know, we would just have to wait and find out. Um, I'd like to, you know, pick your brain a little bit because um, there is a- a- another option, as I understand, to standard lacquer masters, which is the uh, the metal mastering. Right. What can you tell me about the differences between those two uh, uh, formats? Well, um, the actual process of cutting them is different. You need different equipment. The, the lathe itself has to be much more robust. Um, you know, the copper discs, as you can imagine, uh, when that cutting stylus drops down into that copper, there's a lot more drag induced by the copper because, you know, that material is, you know, magnitudes more uh, difficult to cut than the lacquer. So you need a much stronger motor for your turntable. And then the stylus, you know, you, you need a diamond stylus instead of a sapphire or a ruby. And the cutting head itself needs to um, have, you know, stronger magnets and, you know, more horsepower, essentially more wattage available to it to, um, to cut into the copper. And then the suspension that holds the head needs to have um, more, uh, more juice available in order to do the variable depth of cut that um that many lathes have so there's there's a lot of differences and therefore there are very few lathes out there that are even able to try to cut copper is there any difference in quality between the two that you have seen or 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 have heard of well yes they they do sound different um i think that it is harder to get a really loud bassy cut on copper because you know by definition those cuts are are deeper uh, bigger grooves, and, and it's just more difficult physically for the head to do that. I think a lot of a lot of the perception of DMM masters comes from what people have heard uh, the the pressings coming out of GZ Media in the Czech Republic, who is uh, the biggest pressing plant in the world, as far as I know. Uh, they pretty much use DMM masters for um, the majority of their releases, and. They cut, I think they cut fairly conservatively. They, um, you know, they try to just uh, get it on the disc and um, not push the limits. So I think a lot of people uh, have heard those cuts and are judging the potential of DMM based on what GZ has done. And I, I think that it could be done differently. And um, so, so, yeah, I think there is a sound associated with it. 
but um, it's possible that it could be better than what we think it is. After the the master is cut, whether it's uh, lacquer or or uh, DMM, is the manufacturing the pressing at that point is it the same or is it different well it's different one of the reasons dmm was developed was so that it would be easier to make the stampers so with the lacquer the way you make a stamper is you have to turn it into a metal negative like the mold you take a mold of it but the mold has to be metal so it can go onto the pressing plant so in order to do that they take the lacquer they spray it with a very thin uh, layer of silver so it will conduct electricity. And then they can attach the anode or I don't know the terminology for the uh, thing that conducts within that uh, plating bath, but they, they hook the lacquer up to that and they put it in a nickel bath and they'll let it sit in there for hours and then the nickel uh, gets attracted to that silver and eventually you can pull the lacquer out and peel off the metal layer and uh, that can be used as a stamper, but typically they do another couple versions of, uh, you know, they make negatives of that and another negative, and then you have your stamper that goes on the press. But with DMM, you don't need to silver it. It's already conductive, and so it makes it simpler to, um, to make the stampers. And theoretically, you can have less noise issues and less uh, potential problems in the plating. So you eliminate with the DMM, you're eliminating the plating process completely then? No, you're eliminating the silvering process of the plating. You still have to make a metal negative to get it onto the press. So they, they still do the metal work. It's just the, the process of doing the metal work is different and a little simpler. It's a, it's, a, it's a shorter chain to get to a stamper using a DMM. Then at that point, the manufacturing process is identical. Right. Once the stamper's made, whether from lacquer or from DMM, they just put the stamper on a press and away you go. You said it requires a different lather, more horsepower. Is that something that you have to manufacture from the ground up? Or is it something that uh, could be retrofitted, say, to your Scully lathe? Um, I believe it would be possible to retrofit a lathe. It depends on how much work you'd like to do. You know, <laughs> I, you, you can you can do about anything. Um, you could retrofit a Scully for DMM. I don't know if anyone's ever done that, but uh, it is possible. Part of the problem is these motors that are capable of DMM that are out there and established and we know they work, you can't buy them. They're, you know, they're, they're very few made originally and those that have them use them. And um, so you'd have to come up with something new, which is possible. But again, then you're, you're just in that experimental field and who knows how long that takes and how much money you go through trying to solve that problem. And if you were to uh, to make that change, I, I, I'm assuming you wouldn't really be able to make a change back then at that point. Well, you could if you had a, a couple different cutter heads and cutter head suspensions, you could remove the, the DMM suspension and cutter head and put on your lacquer suspension and cutter head. The lacquer doesn't care that your torque on your platter is, is greater, you know, mm -hmm. it's still going to it'll be fine for lacquer or DMM. So it's, it's possible to have a setup that can do both. But um, the reality is that most people that are running these lathes have enough business. They, they don't want to break down their machine and recalibrate and go through all those steps because it's wasted time. Typically those that have DMM do DMM. Those that have lacquer do lacquer and, uh, and they don't go back and forth. You might be able to do it, but who knows how long it would take or how much it would cost. Yeah. Well, and the cutter head is the real motor technology is there's a lot more of it out there and there's a lot of things that could, you know, potentially be adapted to work for the platter motor, but it's the cutter head that is the real problem. There's just not a lot of DMM capable cutter heads out and, um, you know, creating a cutter head that sounds good at all, cutting any material is extremely difficult. You know, the last real innovations were in the 80s and that was DMM but um, really the by the mid 70s um, the technology was it's very similar now to what it was in the mid 70s the differences between the 50s and the 70s you know the uh, of course there was stereo um, and then there the lathes became more intelligent uh, they are able to vary their lines per inch automatically and you know have 
variable depth of cut and the cutter heads got better. They started sounding better. Um, so yeah, there, there was quite a bit of advancement up until I'd say the mid seventies and then things sort of plateaued. And how did you get into vinyl mastering? Well, I, I've always been a vinyl collector, vinyl lover. Um, I, you know, I worked in a record store throughout the two thousands. Um, and, and yeah, just a, as a music fan, I, I love that format. I love the physicality of it. I love listening to it. And so as a mastering engineer, it was always kind of a dream to, to be able to get into cutting. And when I realized, um, you know, after several years of mastering and getting established, I was working on projects that were being cut elsewhere. And I just thought it would be great to be able to do it myself and, you know, learn that whole aspect of the business. So I started looking uh, for a lathe and, you know, eventually found, found a lathe that would work and uh, just embarked on the process of learning how to use it, rest, restoring it and improving it. And um, it's been quite a process over the last eight years. Well, and your studio is beautiful. I invite uh, people to check out the link on our website, uh, vinylsnob.com. By the way, how many, uh, how many lacquers do you uh, have on hand? Well, that's, it kind of depends. I have, I have some perfect ones in a box, you know, about six of those. And then I have a, a, quite a large stack of lacquers that I, for some reason, when I pulled them out initially, I decided not to cut them. Maybe there was a, a tiny little cosmetic mm. flaw or maybe I test cut and there was, they were a little noisy, but so I have a lot of those lacquers. We'll see if I, if I need to dip into those, obviously I would, I would tell, you know, my client that, Hey, I, I can cut it now, but it's got to be on these or we can wait for hopefully a new box of MDCs. So yeah, I'm, I'm okay for now. But the real problem, actually, MDC does not make uh, 10-inch lacquers, which are used to cut 7-inch masters. Oh. So um, just about everyone that was using that, even that were MDC customers, they were still using the Apollo product for their 7 inches. Right. So, so that's done for now. I mean, you can still cut a 7-inch a master on a 14-inch disc, but those discs are more expensive, and it's more expensive to plate them. And, I imagine seven inches are going to be, that's where, you know, the, those are really going to slow down, I think, uh, more so than the 12 inches. Interesting. I had not heard that. All right. Well, thank you again for all your time, Gus, and uh, we'll check back and uh, see if that order shows up here in a few weeks. Okay. Sounds good. Our thanks to Gus and everybody at Sky Onion for taking the time to speak with us. After the break, Dana Berry will be here with another installment of his series, Confessions of a Vinyl Addict. Welcome back to Vinyl Snob. I'm Dave Whitaker. And now, continuing his series, Confessions of a Vinyl Addict, here's producer Dana Berry. I recently sat down with Tom Lynch, longtime buyer for Amoeba Music in San Francisco. His knowledge is almost overwhelming, and a perfect guest on Confessions of a Vinyl Addict. The first record player was from my Aunt Winnie, and I got her kid's portable record player, and it came with three 45s. Freddie Cannon on Swan doing Palisades Park, but the flip of Palisades Park was his little Richard soundalike number June July and August so that that was a favorite in that and um, the Marvelettes don't mess with Bill Tennessee Ernie Ford doing uh, your cheating heart on MGM kind of set me up for like unhinged rock and roll soul and country like when I turned eight the Beatles 62 to 66 collection had come out the red album and the 67 to 70 collection the blue album so I got those and then a stack of comic books. And I, I measure all birthdays in <laughs> gift exchange. Like, well, is it going to be as cool as that? So while kids like me were playing kickball, Tom sat on the edge of the playground with a radio plastered to his ear, listening to the theme from Shaft. When others were headed off to college, Tom had other ideas. It was the 80s. Reagan was president. Mm. Well, this guy's gonna have us nuked any time now so 
rather than waste time and money going to college, I'm just going to work in a record store and go see shows, chase girls, and try and play in a band. Full Moon Records was the first store I worked at, and they opened in 73 or 74. And they were known for cutouts and jazz imports and um, a lot of uh, uh, marijuana smoking paraphernalia. The guys that worked there, they were all jazz heads. Whenever I hear Mahavishnu Orchestra or Steely Dan or uh, Pat Metheny, I have vivid recollections of going in there before I worked there and all these guys with mirrored shades and bushy beards smoking share of beady cigarettes and smells just like dope. Hey, you need help, kid? <laughs> okay, man. All right, just let me know. The guy goes back to his racing form. <laughs> There's a guy who was always playing the ponies there. I think, he's, I think his name was Don Fordham. He was a jaded soul. <laughs> well, after Full Moon, there was, I worked at a place called Sam's Jams, which was on Nine Mile Road in Ferndale, which was right across from uh, Detroit the eight mile barrier and that that was the best store i ever worked at and i basically refer to it as like that, that those were my college years i fell in with a bunch of guys who were much older seen a lot more experienced a lot more and, and shared all that knowledge i got there right before the horrible shift to compact disc even after the store closed in 94 and it became an art supply store a friend of mine who I worked at the record store got a job at the art supply location. You'd still get these old dudes coming in with boxes of Coltrane and Sunrise records going, well, the record store, I'm at. <laughs> He's like, well, they closed, but I'll buy your... Oh, is that Ornette Coleman? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll buy that off you. Yeah, that's the store where I started buying used records. You know, my friend who picked me out of all the other new recruits Pulled me aside, like, you want to be a used record buyer? I'm like, yeah, I'll be a used record buyer. What do I got to learn? He's like, well, just stand there and buy everything that comes to the front door. I'm like, yeah, but at how much? He's like, you'll find out. No, it was mostly like, how much am I getting for that? Ugh! But it also taught me how to negotiate and yeah. how to approach it, how to read people. And that was something completely unheard of. When, when I arrived here on the West Coast, uh, that was a component that just didn't seem to exist. Like you had one chance to hit the mark for the customer. And if you, if you didn't get it, well, they were picking everything out and walking out the door. And you're just like, whoa, 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 what were you thinking? Nine times out of 10, I found it was like five or $10 difference. Like, well, I'll give you that, <laughs> come on. That ain't anything. It's, it's, it's pretty weird. And, the guy who trained me to be a used buyer, I had a circumstance where this guy melted down on me and it wasn't any fun. And then I talked to my friend about it. And it's like, when, when they, they don't like your offer, just say, what were you thinking? You're basically, what do you want? If they say something outrageous, it's like, yeah, keep it. Tom mentioned cutouts earlier. For those of us who aren't exactly sure what cutouts are, Tom explains. They were like records that stiffed somehow or were factory overruns. Stores would return them to wherever they purchased them. And probably nine times out of ten, they were, they were purchased from one-stop dealers. And then the one-stop dealers would cut probably with electric clippers, you know, a corner in, in the upper right-hand corner. Or... In the 60s, they seemed to, like, punch holes in the upper right-hand corner. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you'll see a lot of the 45s where it's drilled. Those, that stuff, all that stuff was, like, stock that had been returned to distributors, and then they, they uh, sold it off to, to the dealers that would sell them as, like, no returns. This is, this is dead stock. Mm-hmm. Get rid of it. Put it out cheap. You know, some of it was garbage, but, like, when you see some of these punched album covers from the 60s and it's like the Shangri-Las and International Submarine Band. You get like the, because it wasn't the Beatles or it wasn't the Stones, if it didn't fall into that parameter, a, a lot of stuff just did not sell on LP. Discount discount stores, you could go in and like get all that stuff for like a dollar thirty nine LP or, you know, 30 cents on a 45. 
But yeah, cutouts. Scorpio, man, in the middle 80s, like they would have just tons and tons of imp- imports, quote unquote imports, from Portugal, Spain, Italy, and Greece of like the entire Ramones catalog, the Fall catalog, loads and loads of reggae records and PIL's Metal Box and the Motorhead No Remorse with the fake leather jacket. And like they were also sitting on unsold quantities of all of the early Lennon Apple stuff, like the live piece in Toronto record with the calendar still inside and the Two Virgins record and Life with the Lions and stacks of the singles. That's why those those like Mind Games and Imagine and Power to the People, you see tons of them in perfect shape because Scorpio was just going, hey, he's dead. I found this warehouse. Just come and get it. Whenever I interview a store owner or a buyer, I always ask for stories of great buys or finds. Well, back at Sam's Jams, there was a disc jockey by the name of Ernie Durham. And he was one of the first black DJs in Detroit. And he was on WQHB AM. And he was known as the Frantic Ernie D. And then Ernie died. And his son came into Sam's Jams. And he's like, you know, my dad shopped here all the time. He'd want you to buy up his collection. A disc jockey, a black disc jockey who'd been in radio since the late 40s, early 50s. Every dealer in town went to Ernie Durham's funeral looking to get in good with his lovely widow, Jackie. And then his kid's like, oh, yeah, why don't you call my mom? That became this insane soap opera. And Ernie, when he got out of radio, he started working for Casablanca. This was at the time of when Kiss was on the label and when Donna Summer and... Parliament, one of the locations that things were housed in, he and his wife had near the campus of the University of Detroit on Livernois Avenue, Ernie Durham's campus ballroom. We went to the old location and, you know, it was in the wintertime, it was really cold, it was really dark. Get out the flashlights and there's all these gold records piled up for Kiss Double Platinum and and Donna Summer and the Village People. and uh, There was like acetates from Jim Stewart at Stax to Ernie going, you know, here's the new Sam and Dave. I think you're really going to love it. But it, like I said, it was, it was a total soap opera because there, there were some family friends who were snaking records away. Some very rare Motown records went missing and sold at this tiny little store. This place called Soul in the Hole Records. And that's where a bunch of this stolen stuff from the Ernie Durham collection wound up. It just it just kept going in terrible directions. Mm. It finally blew up and somebody else intervened and, and, and finished off buying the, the rest of the collection. This one's about as close to buried treasure as you can get. These guys were demolitioning a storage unit out in Waterford, Michigan. But that's where the Cream Magazine offices moved to when they left the Cass Corridor. So they moved all the way out there and did cream there for a few years. And then they moved to the more urbane Birmingham neighborhood. And they put all this stuff in storage and left it there. And it was promo boxes from like the early 70s of records. Mm. And back issues of cream and t-shirts and those little enameled Boy, howdy, crumb-designed pins. I'd be calling my friends. I'm going, get over here now. <laughs> These guys were bringing in boxes and boxes oh. of this stuff. Bob Bob was like, man, I think this is the Cream Magazine stock. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah, it's like Waterford. That's where they were. I'm like, okay. And we're like, all right, what's going on? Oh, we're tearing down this, this storage unit out in Waterford. And we found all these records, and we heard you guys buy records, so... And it was like promo copies of all the Zeppelin stuff and all the Black Sabbath stuff and reissues from RCA and Chess and uh, Columbia and Jazz, Blues, Soul. Mm-hmm. But it was like the back issues when Cream was still like a, in newsprint, mm-hmm. fold over. It was pretty great. I always love hearing about the shady characters that frequent a record store. I can only imagine what creatures roam the aisles of Amoeba. 
see those jazz collectors every single day. It's like, come on, the stock doesn't change that much. I got one regular customer. If you've got the right record in the right shape, he'll fork over 1500 bucks, no problem. He's a huge punk rock collector. And then there's... There's the bottom feeders who are in there all the time buying all like the two ninety nine and dollar stuff. There's the the clearance CD guys. Yeah, man. There's this one guy. He's loathed by everyone. He he comes in there and he just like spends all day in there making sure it's all first editions. Goes to every last section in the store and it's of course it's for resale and. You know, he's even tried to, like, bribe people to, like, look at the clearance records in the back room. Like, I'll give you 20 bucks if I can look at a box of clearance. Wow. I'm just like, just take the money, go upstairs, go across the main floor on the catwalk, and go out the front door. You've made 20 bucks. That guy will be sitting at the back door waiting. And he'll never do that again. But, yeah, you know, just as it's a sickness to collect as much of this stuff and stay working in record stores as long as I have. There's the regular customers, there's the, the, the bottom feeders, the big game hunters, mm-hmm. and, 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 the, and the flippers. It's the game of you know, diminishing returns. How much stuff from the interesting years of 20th century music, how much of the good stuff is still lying about? I mean, it's in private collections. I mean, we mostly see really interesting things when like people die or people are forced to move or they get divorced and, and that's you know it's always sad the, their emotional attachment to the music collection is palpable tom is also a collector in fact we sat in the shadow of a giant record shelf on one side and a tower of about 20 boxes of yet to be filed 45s on the other go to the webpage and you can see for yourself like, I'm, I'm never going to be collecting punk rock collectibles. I'm never going to be collecting high-end jazz releases. I'm happy with a reissue. Affordability is key. And, and if, if you spend all your time scraping the cream off the top of what comes in, then you're not going to have anything to sell. I haven't figured out what the next step in life is, so you know, we got to keep selling cool old records. But... What I find is there's plenty of stuff that where my interest is is there's lots of it around and nobody wants it. <laughs> you know? My fascination with exotica or or lounge mm-hmm. those those terms uh, tend to be pretty broad but there's stuff in that file that I'm endlessly fascinated with. I look for the interesting title on a 45. You know, sometimes it's it's a total disappointment, but a lot of times it's, you know, it's a it's an interesting piece of music to me. Everybody's got one or two records. I and the Ames brothers included, they've got it they've got one song, My Rock and Roll Shoes, check it out, it's pretty good. Uh <laughs> but there's all this stuff that nobody wants and you can get it cheap and if you have the time to check it out there's, there's some fun, interesting, left-of-center records that got made by totally square artists. Anything that's got a little pizzazz. I try to tell people, go for the Triumvirate records or I'm on Duel, too. But don't forget about Earl Grant and the Ames Brothers. Okay. <laughs> As any addict will tell you, they can kick their habit for brief periods of time. I was surprised to hear how long Tom's abstinence lasted. I moved out here with 25 CDs. I was living at my brother's apartment, and then I got my own place. But it was always limited space. And, you know, these yeah. goddamn records take up a lot of, a lot of space. I just, I, I cooled it. I, I didn't buy any 45s. I, I hardly bought any LPs. I probably bought like, you know, 20 records in a couple of years. I dedicated a lot of time to that before I, I, I came west, and... San Francisco at that time had so many rep movie houses. I was really scratching the itch of, of seeing as many films as I, I, I could. And, and the bookstores. I, I, maybe I just traded one vice right. for another. Right. You know, the endless negotiation. 
Any last thoughts on being a record buyer in the digital age? One of the things that I find that's lacking is for San Francisco, so many of our, our regular customers have had to move because they can no longer afford to stay. And there was that community of, of fans who wanted to talk about, you name the genre, the artists, the records. Having that community constantly coming in, talking about records, recommending records to one another. Now people come in, they have their own agenda. They don't need to talk to anybody, looking things up on their handheld device. You don't have that same interaction, and um, I miss that. I want to thank Tom Lynch for being such a gracious host and terrific guest. This is Dana Barry for Vinyl Snob. On our travels around the country, we always like to stop in and check out the local record store scene. In this episode, we visit Brookline, Massachusetts. I'm Jonathan Sandler. I own Village Vinyl and Hi-Fi in the Coolidge Corner section of Brookline, Massachusetts. First of all, I'm a lifelong music fan. Grew up when I was younger working in record stores. Tried to grow up. (laughs) And here I am, back where I belong. A lifetime vinyl collector, he started the store with his own collection. Most of my collection I got rid of when I started the store. You know, I bought a few other collections, but I had a pretty vast collection to start with, and I wanted to start strong, and, you know, it, it just seemed like the right thing to do. I've been in this location for nine months now. I had been in a much smaller location in Brookline Village, where I live, hence the name Village Vinyl. Surprisingly, the desire to open a store was not based just on a love of vinyl. Stereo equipment, believe it or not. I had really gotten the vintage stereo bug and had been doing that for a few years, sort of just amassing it and learning to work on it. I worked for a few different local shops, you know, learning to repair a little bit. The stock, as it were, got so vast that it was time to start looking for storage spaces just to get out of my house. I started thinking about, you know, what about putting the stuff back into circulation and, you know, having a store with records. And the original store wasn't that much more expensive than a storage unit would have been. It was in a basement, yeah. You know, there are a lot of stores in the area. Uh, Some do, some record stores do have equipment but they don't offer repair service and you know the equipment that they have is is limited and you know there's no sort of warranty on it usually um and then there are high-end stereo stores as well that offer repairs and things like that but no store really fused those two concepts in its current location village vinyl and hi-fi owes a lot of its success to the neighborhood a ton of walk in here yeah which is great the last location was more of a destination you could literally walk right by it and not even notice it so i'm paying four times the rent here that i was paying in the last location but doing more than four times the business so it's it's awesome all the customers from the old spot you know traveled over here you know it's it's walkable even it's close But, uh, you know, people from Boston are noticing it more now. People come here shopping. People come here for restaurants. There's a great movie theater that drives a lot of traffic. Bookstore brings a lot of people here. I love doing systems for people, people just getting into vinyl. You know, they need, you know, the trifecta of a turntable or receiver, speakers. Mm -hmm. I usually get a sense of someone's price range, and then I give them a really good package deal. Say if they're willing to spend up to two fifty, they'd probably get like three twenty-five to three seventy-five. It's discounted for me. A get stuff out of here, and B, you know, it usually it creates creating a customer. Having worked in record stores years earlier, Jonathan had no idea what to expect when he opened the doors to Village Vinyl. Honestly, I had no idea how it was going to go. Couldn't believe some of the prices I was seeing in them. Quickly realized when I opened here, like, wow, you know, people are, are willing to pay good money for even things like Billy Joel records and things like that. It's incredible. Even just my first day in business, and I continue to be just blown away by the response and the the collective desire for, for vinyl. You know, mind you, last time I worked in a record store was in the actually mid-90s, and vinyl was... Yeah, 
was dirt cheap, and CDs were the thing. It's amazing, yeah. For some reason, things go in cycles. Like for for a few weeks last year, people were coming in and buying all my 10cc records. I don't know why. I don't know if they were in a soundtrack or something. So I love that. For Christmas this year, everyone's asking for Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons records. Like, huh? So for me to have this space down here, which I know the people who are listening can't see, but uh, it's all the records that people don't usually ask for. But if you have space, you hang on to them because someone might ask for them. So come down here and grab all your Frankie Valley records and bring them up. So it's you know, in my last space, I had to basically give them away. Just didn't have space for for the the bottom shelf stuff. We're known for jazz more than anything else. I wouldn't say we're a jazz store by any stretch of the imagination, um, but our jazz collection runs really deep. Jazz heads usually come in, or even just you know someone getting their feet wet and getting their first pile of jazz records. Um, people usually come in here and leave with something. Yeah. That said, um, you know we're very strong on metal. I think we've got more classic rock than anyone in town. We're just trying to get cool stuff. I grew up listening to that stuff, so I'm very well versed in it. What's amazing is the prices. Had I just kept all that stuff and the T-shirts and everything, you know, it, ma it makes it makes you know the chase uh, of finding it again, you know, plus other stuff in a collection just that more you know exciting. You know, you mentioned discogs, and a lot of stuff will come in where it's like, you know, this box is garbage. You know, why did I, why did I take this in at all? So I'll go down in the basement, and then you look up one thing you hadn't seen before, and oh my god, that's a, that's a one hundred dollar record, and you instantly beat the pile. My Best Buy was very much a calculated thing. I when I opened up my first store, which I've since moved from, a few months into it. A collector who had gotten out of collecting and had sold his stereo years ago, but still had all his vinyl. He lived in Newton, Massachusetts. He's a doctor, really nice guy. Bought a ton of records, almost to the point of of an obsession. Like he, he, there are certain records he had 15 copies of. Uh, it was a 6,000 record collection, jazz, rock, classical exquisite pieces like really 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 good stuff he knew what he had but i saw the collection and knew that i was never going to see a collection like this again this guy person of means who pretty much was able to buy whatever he wanted before all the everything was you know priced like it is now he was buying well into the into the 90s when records were no longer a thing anyway i went to see his collection had to have it, spent all of the money that I had made doing the, the business, emptied the account, and then some. That pretty much made my store. I spent, you know, in, ex in excess of $20,000 on it, you know, of all the profits this shop had made. But, you know, it, w it was the collection of a lifetime. You know, and what, what kills me is other stores in town had seen that collection, and no one bought it. That's the kind of collection, you see it, and if you're a record store, you take a loan, whatever it is, you do whatever it takes to get that stuff. Tons of original blue notes. I sold one of the classical records for $1,500. I'll, I'll probably never get a collection as good as that. We get punk collections sometimes that are amazing. It's really people who were there back in the day whose collections you want to get. So when I meet someone, you know, someone who was there, they were trading, you know, seven inches with their friends, or someone who, you know, you knew was a big collector and was really into metal or jazz, you know, psych, prog, whatever it is, you know, it's like, we're, we're good on Bob Dylan records here. I don't, I, I don't get excited when someone brings me a pile of Beatles or Bob Dylan or Rolling Stones. It's just like, I, I have, I have more of those artists than I'll ever sell. It's the more esoteric stuff that gets you excited. That's Jonathan Sandler, owner of Village Vinyl and Hi-Fi in Brookline, Massachusetts. Photos of and links to his shop are available on our website, vinylsnob.com. And that's the program. Vinyl Snob is produced at the studios of Post Audio in Eureka, California. Dana Barry is our executive producer. Theme music composed by Cameron Robbins. Front Office handles all the social media. You can always reach me by email. 
In fact, the first five people who can email me and tell me the name of the only company in the world still manufacturing lacquers for vinyl mastering, the answer was in Vinyl News. We'll send you a Vinyl Snob t-shirt. Dave at VinylSnob.com And if you find this program in a couple of years, yeah, you may still want to enter the contest. We've got a few prizes from previous episodes still yet to be claimed. Apparently not everyone makes it to the end of the show. What are you going to do? For more great podcasts, be sure to check out all the other programs here on the Pantheon Network. And for pics and links to this show, the episodes page at VinylSnob.com. I'm Dave Whitaker. Thanks for listening. Hey everybody, this is Brian Reisman, host of the podcast Side Jams, which is now a proud member of the Pantheon family of podcasts. I've been a freelance entertainment journalist for 25 years now, and I often end up in conversations that go off on tangents. Suddenly you're discussing someone's outside passion or hobby, something you didn't know about, and it leads into revelations about their character and about their life outside of their art. I've often had to cut those details out because a story had a strict word count or a specific focus, so here the entire focus of the podcast is just on their side jam or side jams. For example, Allison Chain's frontman William Duvall spent some time talking to me about reading history, which led him into talking about his public school education and how it was so terrible in high school that he actually managed to get into a private school for free so his life could take a different course. In this series of podcasts, you're going to be hearing my interviews with musicians of all different backgrounds and genres, talking about everything from surfing to collecting antiques to stargazing. I hope you enjoy Side Jams. Please tune in regularly, and I'll have a lot of interesting guests in store for you. And now, another no-brainer money-saving tip from Progressive. Marcus, what happened? I was changing my oil and I spilled some on the floor. Oh, we'll use these $50 bills to wipe it up. Perfect. Got any more? Yeah, yeah, take a couple hundred. Stop. Instead of using money, use an old rag. And here's a better tip from Progressive on how not to waste money. Don't pay too much for car insurance. Drivers who switch and save could save hundreds. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Potential savings will vary. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.